Hey everyone, welcome to the show today. We've got a special guest, author, activist, Connor Boyack has joined us on the show. Connor, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. All right. Now, we've got our education fundraiser initiative coming up. We love to help out homeschooling families and less fortunate families in general who want to provide a good education for their children. And an education is something that you've written about quite a lot. I mean, the the whole Tuttle Twins series is geared towards that, and there's one specifically, the Education Vacation. I think I got that title right. Yep, you did. Uh, that's really good. You've written some other books, uh, Mediocrity with Corey D'Angelis. Yep. Oh, you do pronounce the yes. I wasn't sure. Yep. About. <laughs> All right. So uh, you've done a lot of a lot of work in this area. So what to you is the reason that education of children particularly is so important. Why do you focus on that? Well, to me, how we educate the rising generation is how we build our future society. So if we want society to be a certain way, we need to make sure that we are teaching young people in alignment and congruence with those social ideals, uh, with those, you know, ethical standards, those economic, uh, you know, understandings. And so school is not this just abstract thing that everyone just has to get through uh, because when it is, when we treat it that way, what happens is that so many organizations are like, like, especially on kind of the right of center, let's say conservative, libertarian, voluntarist side of things. So often we wait to teach adults. We're reaching out to voters. We're trying to persuade adults who are often very set in their ways and very difficult to change their mind. By contrast, if you can talk to younger people who are still evaluating things and trying to understand, they're going to be a bit more open to different ideas. Now, on the flip side, this is why the totalitarians throughout history have always gone after the kids so that they could brainwash them and propagandize them. But the, the answer to that is not to entrust to the government the education of the of the rising generation like we do today. The the response to that should be that we with the truth and the good ideas need to get in there and reach and teach you know kids and their parents and whole families so that they can learn these ideas together and that's kind of ultimately what our mission is about is trying to educate entire families spark discussions deeper and more meaningful discussions at the dinner table about current events and foster critical thinking and all that because how we how we do it with the young is the, you know, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, that's going to be the society that we have. And looking around at the up and coming, all the millennials and the gen, whatever they are, Gen Z or whatever, I'm kind of terrified by what kind of society we're going to have. And so we're trying to get in there and fix that by teaching them truth. Hmm. It sounds like yours, your approach is a lot more family focused, which I like being a family man myself. But the way... Uh, the government does it, uh, state schooling, Department of Education, and uh, all of that. It sounds like you consider it less than optimal, let us say, uh, which I would agree with. But why does that happen? And in what ways is it less optimal uh, than some alternative forms of schooling? So this is a four-hour long interview, right? Is that how... <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll put it this way, and, and I think we were going to get into this later, but it's a good segue right now. So uh, recently, there was a group called the National Commission on Excellence in Education. 
And this group spent a year and a half going across the country, reviewing, you know, classrooms, curricula, talking to teachers, talking to parents, students, and they're trying to wrap their heads around how is education going in America? And at the conclusion of this uh, 18 month kind of study and road trip, uh, they produced a report. They titled that report in, in non-glowing terms, A Nation at Risk. They called it an open letter to the American people. And in there, they said that America's foundations were being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity. And that if a foreign government had attempted to impose upon America the very mediocre education that we now have today, we might have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, they said, we've allowed this to happen to ourselves. So uh, I, I told a fib a little bit when, when starting this story. This did not recently happen. I said this was recent. This happened over 40 years ago. So the, the book that you mentioned that I did with Corey DeAngelis is Mediocrity. And we published it to the day on the 40th anniversary of that report coming out. The Reagan administration put it out in 1983. And so our book, Mediocrity, 40 Ways That Government Schools Are Failing Today's Students. Every We have 40 chapters and every chapter is a different way. And we released it on the 40th anniversary on uh, in April 26, just a couple months ago. And so, so it's difficult to answer your question because there's a whole host, at least 40 that we've identified, but there's a whole host of problems. Fundamentally, I'll, I'll, I'll just pick one. Okay. Um, and we could obviously go down. I mean, we could talk about the flawed curriculum and the, the activism of teachers and how 87% of them support Democrats. It's a very you know left-leaning type of environment. We could talk about the authoritarian model of education and how it's like, I'm teaching this because I know and you have to learn from me and uh, teaching to the test where it's not about you know building good character and following your curiosity. It's just memorize this crap and regurgitate for the test. We could talk about all kinds of stuff. One that I'd like to bring up recently is the just-in-case model versus the just-in-time model. What I mean by that is, uh, I'll put you on the spot. Do you remember by chance the quadratic equation at all? I, you know, I'm not even sure I learned the quadratic equation, <laughs> to be honest. Okay, let's try a second one. Did you learn this? Uh, can you finish the second half of this statement? The mitochondria is the... Uh, I believe they typically say it's the powerhouse of the cell. You got it. Exactly right. The powerhouse of the cell. I don't remember the quadratic equation earlier. I butchered it last time. It's like the opposite of B plus or minus the square root of something or other. I, I, I lose track. The point that I'm bringing up is that our schooling model uses a just in case uh, uh, approach. And what that means is let's cram these kids' minds full of all this information just in case in 30 years they'll need to know that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Let's teach them all this stuff now because every you know seventh grader needs to learn this and every 11th grader needs to know these things just in case the future of their life requires them to have this information. That is so uh, atypical of the human experience. It's artificial. It's, it's frankly bizarre because we as adults don't do that. We don't just binge content that has no context for our lives, but that, hey, maybe in 40 years when I'm old, I'll be able to use this information. No, we follow a just in time model. So, you know, if you're, um, if you're like, 
like I am not a, a car person at all, right? And and so my wife were out at some concert a few months ago and she had a flat tire. And like I generally know how to repair a tire. It had been a little while, so I'm not like totally stupid, but in her car there were like these three little things that you had to figure out, okay, where's that thing and how do I twist this thing? And I had this like cable that would slowly you had to, you know, uh well crank it and it would slowly lower the spare tire. Uh um, kind of so <laughs> what did I do? Just in time for when I needed that information, I popped out the car manual and I turned to the right page and I read two paragraphs and I said, aha, here's you know the information that I need. And then we were on our way. Uh your refrigerator breaks down. You don't think to yourself, man, I'm so good good glad that I read the manual when I first bought this refrigerator 14 years ago, just in case I would need that information in the future. No, you might hang on to it, or maybe you just say I'll download it again in the future or whatever. But just in time for when you need the information, you pull up YouTube. How do you fix a, you know, a clogged sink? Or how do you do this? That is how we as humans learn. That is the normal, natural experience. I have this desire or I have this need. Let me go acquire the resources and information I need and continue on my journey. Schooling is completely artificial. It is upside down. It's fake. It's not natural at all. And uh, and so we have these kids who are just being pumped full of information that they don't need. It's a pump and dump. It's like you pump it uh, into their minds and then they dump it out on a test and then they forget it because they have no context. There's no relevance to their life. So what is the point to doing that? And so uh, that is that is why I have so many problems with the government school system, because I just see it as ultimately largely wasteful. There's far more efficient and effective ways to educate uh, the young. And I hate waste. So I, I dislike the government schools. Yeah. And you put it that way, it seems like it's something that exists for its own sake. Like we're teaching you this stuff so you can pass the test. And why do yeah. you have to pass the test to finish school? But that's it. <laughs> yep. Just so that's you can exactly do it. exactly right. Well, and yeah, I, I would be the kid like many are who would raise my hand and say, why do we need to learn this? You know, and, and the teacher would always say, it's gonna, it's on the test. Yeah. Like, like that's any relevance, you know, and, but, but they, they lack a good answer. Those teachers, what are they going to say? I don't know, <laughs> because I was told to, otherwise I'll lose my job, you know, because some mm -hmm. curriculum committee four years ago decided that every, you know, ninth grader has to learn this. Mm -hmm. uh, those aren't great answers either, but it just shows the inherent flaws in the system. There are many more, as I said, we've identified 40, but uh, mm -hmm. ultimately for us, this book was kind of a wake up call for parents to say like, hey, if you've been on the fence, or if you've been asleep at the wheel, plugged into the matrix, you know, and not aware of like the scope of these problems, read this book, we're going to machine gun you with this list of, you know, here's all these, these uh, problems, you get done reading this, and you're going to be ready to say, all right, I got to do something different with my kids, whether it's, you know, private school, micro school, homeschool, homeschool co-op, you know, there's so many options today. Um, but the, the goal for us was to kind of raise awareness and say, these are big problems, let's take action accordingly. Nice. I like the the image on the cover of the mm -hmm. Statue of Liberty almost underwater. Forty years yep. ago, the tide was rising, and it's risen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. What does that mean today? It's not a, a yeah. It's it's risen past tense. So we're all submerged underneath this this tide being swept away offshore. Um, and and yeah, for those uh, you know looking at the video, the cover is a, a Statue of Liberty almost up to her mouth. So we intentionally put the water line just above her mouth silencing oh. the the statue of liberty um and 
you know, because now we get in all the cancel culture crap and free speech suppression on campuses and everything else. So we thought that that would be some fun symbolism to throw in there. Nice, nice. Of a couple other things I liked what you were saying. The quadratic equation was a perfect example. It's something that you can easily look up whenever you need it. And um, when they first started public schooling, maybe it wasn't as easy to get your hands on books. But now, I mean, you can get a math book that'll teach you everything you need to know for $10, $20. And yep. anyone who wants to learn can. There's not really yep. anything... Uh, stopping them. or to use your math example think of Khan Academy in fact for anyone listening to this you're you're interested in education I would encourage you and maybe if you have show notes you can find this and link it there Saul Khan who is the creator of Khan Academy K-H-A-N uh, he recently did a TED talk just a few weeks ago about artificial intelligence and education it's it's a must watch if you care about education because all this AI stuff and chat GPT and everything, teachers are terrified, you know, because kids are just going to turn in garbage essays that uh, chat GPT wrote. And how are they going to be able to assess how kids are learning? To me, I'm excited because it's a highly disruptive technology to hopefully break <laughs> through this monopolistic, you know, crap that we've suffered through for decades. But what what Khan is doing is fascinating. Um what he talks about in the TED Talk is he says, if you think throughout world history, all the aristocracy and the elite, their children always kind of came up the same ladder as they did because of the privilege that they had. And what was that privilege? Private tutors. They didn't put their kids in the, in the government schools and with all the masses. They got private tutors for their kids. So he says... How can we turn AI not from being this like, here you go and you know here's an essay or whatever, how can we turn it into a private tutor? So there with whether you love or hate Khan Academy, the example is uh, they're building an AI within, I actually just used it last night um, playing with it. It's, it's really good. Um, it's an iterative AI. And what I mean by that, imagine that you have an actual uh, tutor, a human sitting next to you, and you've got this worksheet of problems that you, know, you need to do for, let's say, algebra. And you look at the first one, and you're like, I don't know where to start. Well, that tutor is not just going to give you the answer. They're going to try and provoke you with questions and get you to like, okay, well, you know, where do you think you should start? Or what do you see? Or, um, you know, what do you think is not the way to go? And just get them starting to think about it to incrementally help them. And then, you know, maybe they get two mm -hmm. steps down and they're stuck again. So then the tutor can say, oh, hey, great job so far. You got the first two steps. Remember from the lesson, here's the general principle that you learned. How would that principle apply to this particular question? Oh, 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 yeah. Okay, here, you know, here it is. And so the AI that they've built mm -hmm. is, is the part of this vision that they have of creating for every child a private exclusive tutor where you don't have to feel stupid asking dumb questions. You don't have to uh, feel like, you know, am I going to be judged or anything? You can ask every question that's top of mind. You can look as stupid as you want and you're going to have this, this like buddy that's just there to incrementally support you. And so wow. I, I think there's a lot of apocalyptic uh, um, uh, outcomes potentially for AI. You know, there can be a lot of bad things that happen. 
but they're like think of like nuclear technology you can have nuclear bombs but you could also have nuclear power generation these are tools that can be used for good and for evil um, i would love to explore how we can leverage ai for good like khan academy is doing to totally disrupt this archaic system that we've been doing and create these tutors for kids that are going to empower them to just again just in time for when they need to know something to your point you don't need to memorize the quadratic, quadratic equation you know, if you're ever curious about it or ever think you need to learn it, go turn to your AI buddy and say, hey, here's this problem. Is this a good time to use the quadratic equation? Or, you know, like it's all contextual. It's our circumstantial, uh, far more relevant for kids than just cramming them full of stuff that maybe in 30 years they'll use. Mm. I think <laughs> I think it's funny to the point of them using AI to just turn in a an essay and write it for them is because uh, they're they're learning something and maybe not what the teacher wants them to learn <laughs> yeah. but they're learning and uh that kind of like you said a disruptive disruptive of the normal normal the government <laughs> education system i think that is really amazing and i've it's funny too because i've tried to use i've used ai in the past and you kind of it almost works in my experience at least with chat gpt the opposite of what you were describing Khan is trying to do, because you kind of have to coach the AI to give mm -hmm. you uh, what you want when it's a, a block of text, for instance. Yep. So that's neat that it could work in the opposite way. That's right. <laughs> Fascinating. So how, I'm, I'm curious, in your opinion, how does the interests of the child interact with this uh, government model of schooling? Because I mean, the classic, you know, for, if you're a boy, you know, you're interested in, in cars or in, in dinosaurs. I want to be a paleontologist when I grow up, something yeah. like that. But in school, they don't teach you anything about cars or anything about paleontology. Yeah. Uh, so how, how does that interact uh, with the child uh, psychologically and educationally, in your opinion? Um, so so I, I analogize it this way. Uh, children get on the school bus of their own life. Uh, so the school bus in this analogy just represents their educational journey. They get on the bus and they sit in the back and someone else is at the driver wheel mm -hmm. and they're determining where to go, how fast to go, what direction to take, all the steps to take. But the child is a passive participant in their own education. You know, I don't know if you've ever done this with your kids. I, uh, you know, not that I, I'm going to not admit to any illegal behavior here at all, but you can imagine if I were to allow my child to sit on my lap and we're in a vacant parking lot on a Sunday afternoon and I let them take the steering wheel, right, and, and have that experience. Do you think that they're going to be upset with me? Do you think they're going to be frustrated with it? Like, no, they're going to be elated, you know, and like, wow, this is amazing. And so I think it's the same thing when we give our children a little bit of control with boundaries. Again, like they're going to be on my lap and I'm going to be there to protect. Similarly with the analogy, I don't want to give them full control of, of their whole life because they don't understand things yet. But I can give them some control with my guidance and protection and let them kind of say, hey, I'm curious about this or I want that. Fundamentally, to your point about like what does it do to their psyche and, and so forth, uh, Ultimately, what we're talking about when we're talking about their passions or their curiosities is their humanity, their individuality, what makes them uniquely them, which they're still figuring out and growing into, but they're unique individuals. So what does it tell them subconsciously after 15 years of going through a system that suppresses and ignores that individuality? 
right? It, it shows that, oh, the collective is more important than the individual. You have to conform to the system rather than, you know, the system conforming to your interests. What you care about, that's for your own time. You have to do what we're telling you to do. You have to do it on our own agenda versus, let's say, maybe a homeschooling approach where I, I wrote a book years ago called Passion Driven Education. And uh, and the whole idea is, I've seen if I had a copy here, but it's uh, the whole idea is leveraging a child's individual interests and building an education curriculum around what they care about. Uh, the example that I use in the book, one of many is at the time I wrote it, my son was super interested in Angry Birds, the video game. And so I started figuring out and experimenting with how do I teach my son English and math and science and all kinds of other subjects through Angry Birds. So it's like, hey, let's play this game. Hey, why is it when you fling them off of the little slingshot, why do they fall? That's well, gravity, Dad. I'm like, oh, okay. How do, how does gravity work? And what's force? Like, why is it that the the harder you pull back, you know, and the further you pull back, the more force there is with them coming out? What's mass? What's acceleration? Like, all those things. And he gobbled it up because I wasn't sitting him down and saying, son, today we're going to talk about gravity. You know, <laughs> like I wasn't making him conform to a system and a process that said, hey, at this age, you're going to learn about gravity in the 16th week of your science class. No, I was taking knowledge and conforming it to him. I was helping him understand a world he was already curious about. In effect, I was speaking his language of Angry Birds rather than forcing him to speak the language of physics, right? And learn these abstract concepts. So I go into way more depth in, in that book, Passion Driven Education. But the point is, when you honor their individuality, when you speak to their interests, you see them, you, you support them, you say like, hey, what you care about matters. So let's, let's find things that we can do to support you on, on that journey. And it's an entirely different model than what the modern schooling system uh, does. So for those of us who care about individuality and the soul and the, the humanity of, of the individual... Um, I think it's imperative that we educate our children in a manner that is in alignment with those social ideals. And again, in a collectivist, so socialist type system like the government schools, you're not going to get that. You're going to get quite the opposite. And look around us. You see all these drones who are just willingly plugged into the matrix and they're apathetic and they're not entrepreneurial. They don't critically like all of that is the outcome of two decades of schooling that suppresses their individuality. And, and I'll end with this point. When you go back and you look at the architects of the modern government school system, I'm talking about folks like Horace Mann and John Dewey and all these guys. They were all collectivists. They all wanted to subordinate the individual to the state. They looked with fondness to Prussia, uh, kind of the proto-Germany, very militaristic country that built an education model designed to train obedient soldiers and submissive citizens because everyone was kind of unruly doing whatever they want. They said, no, let's create schools that will pump out the product that we want to see to create a very kind of orderly military to go, you know, oppress everybody else. And all these early guys like Horace Mann and whatever are looking over at Prussia and they're like, that's amazing. We want that. They bring it over to America. And that is the genesis of the very system that we have pumping out submissive citizens and obedient factory workers and, and soldiers and, and voters. That's not what I want for my kids. If it's not what you, the listener, want for your kids, then you got to act accordingly. It makes me think of, I'm not sure if it's just a, if it's a modern tendency or if it's just something that I've noticed more recently of not treating children as people. As if you, if you think about it, an adult 
if they have any curiosity left after the public school system, you know, they don't wait for someone to tell them to go learn something. They think, hey, I'm interested in this. And then they go talk to someone who knows more about it. They go buy a book about it. They go and learn more about what they're interested in. But we, uh, writ large, we don't consider that a child could do the same thing with guidance, as you suggested. It's just, here's all this stuff, and we're going to cram it into you, whether you like it or not, whether you're interested or not, whether it's going to do any good or not. Yeah. And that, uh, it's circling back to what we were talking about at the beginning with the, um, the refrigerator example that you gave, because I was thinking that what I would probably do is call someone who likes doing that kind of thing and who makes a living repairing things because that was something that they were interested in and they wanted to learn more right. and more about it until they became great at doing it. So good that other people will pay them to do it for them because I don't find that interesting or fun at all. But I know some people who love machines of all kinds. Yeah. And... It's division of labor, right? And so you can, rather than spending hours of frustration figuring it out, you can spend hours focused on other activity that you're better at and can create more value with while you then pay someone else to do what they can create value with. So that, that's that's the kind of whole premise of our modern economy is this division of labor and people specializing and us kind of all collaborating together to improve one another's lives. Um, and, and so you're exactly right. Do we want to educate generalists that are all required to know all the same things? Or can we allow our children to focus on particular paths and topics that they're curious about? Parents might be worried like, oh, my son just plays video games all day long, you know, but for all you know, he could grow up to be a video game programmer because of that early interest and make 400 grand a year and, and you know, be doing great. So it's just you don't know. You don't know where your kids are going to go in the future. And I think the most important thing is to support them, uh, not just in their free recreational time, but in their education, focusing on their curiosities and their interests and their passions so that they can go deep in those and then learn a whole lot of other things along the way as they focus on whatever that particular interest is. Mm -hmm. Now, Connor, we've been talking mostly about secular education, you know, learning uh, physics, mathematics, etc. <clears throat> Now, I'll confess, I'm a frequent listener of your Sunday Musings podcast, and I've noticed that in there, uh, you often talk about how the, the LDS or Mormon church is, and it may be the same in other churches too, I'm not sure, but how the kind of education uh, that people typically get is very surface level. Like they don't understand uh, deeper things in the doctrine. And I'm wondering, how much of that do you think is related to the type of education that it's provided? Because I know in the LDS church, it's very standardized and curriculum-based, and it sure. reminds me to some degree of the public school system. So do those faults carry over to other areas, even when the government is not in charge of it? Or is it something um, that, That's a very interesting question. I, short answer, yes, because how we do one thing is how we do anything. And if we're used to, for generations, a certain educational approach, this authoritarian model, this standardized model, everyone learning the same thing at the same time in the same way, 
uh, of course, that's going to spill out and affect other areas of life. When people are tasked with creating a religious curriculum, for example, to use your question, what's their frame of reference? What's their bias? What's their past experience? What, you know, what, what affects how they perceive good education to be? Oh, well, everyone does it this way. And this is what we've always done. Therefore, if we just swap out topics and focus on our, you know, church doctrine over here, then voila, we'll have a, you know, church education system. So I think part of the problem is that it spills out and infects other things. And so we see, you and I see in our church, but I think other churches, you know, struggle with this too. And they've got Bible study or whatever for kids. It's like, do you get up and do you just say, I'm teaching you this because it's true and you need to learn it. And, you know, maybe in Bible study class, you're not going to have tests and homework and <laughs> things like that. No. But if you stand up as the teacher and say, I'm the authority, listen to me. And, you know, and we're not developing critical thinking, which is scary for a lot of people of faith. Um, then, you know, those kids are not necessarily going to internalize those ideas. They're not going to value them. They're maybe going to develop skepticism about them. Uh, what I'm a big fan of going, uh, moving back over to kind of the secular side is a, a series of school, uh, what would you call it, a network of schools called Acton Academy. And they're all over the country. And they're created by this entrepreneur named Jeff Sandifer. Uh, I put my kids in a Acton Academy here in Utah starting last year, uh, after homeschooling them for a decade or whatever. Um, but their model is all Socratic. So in other words, rather than this authoritarian model where I'm going to teach you and you have to learn, Socratic, it, it's Socratic discussion. So the kid will be like, hey, I don't know how to do this. And instead of just giving the answer, the adult who they don't call teachers, they call them guides, the adult will say, okay, well, how how do you think you could figure it out? It's kind of like that that Khan Academy tutor, rather than just re, you know regurgitating uh, or, or providing the answer that they can then regurgitate, it's sparking questions. And getting them to start to think, well, how would I do that? How can I become capable and competent and confident to do this myself? Um, and, and so their model, this human, it's not AI, but you know, these humans who do this Socratic model, um, I think does really well in trying to stimulate critical thinking. And so I think it's that way with religion. I think it's that way with economics. I think it's that way with history. Like all these things, we need to have more kind of Socratic discussion and get kids uh, holding the wheel of their own school bus and starting to take things in a direction they might want to go where they're curious, hey, what's over here? Let's turn left. Um, we, we need to be okay with that. We need to embrace that because it's their life. And I would prefer that we set them up for success by honoring that individuality and being flexible at a young age so that they can go in different directions. And rather than us cramming information down their throats, whether it's in a homeschool or a public school or a Bible study class, uh, instead, we try and evoke curiosity and spark questions and have debate and discussion. I think long term, that's going to be a better model for for the rising generation. So, you know, I've known a lot of people who, uh, for instance, uh, over the pandemic, uh, but even before that, who would say, you know, we're going we're gonna to homeschool our kids. But then they would essentially just copy the government school curriculum and just do right. it at home. And maybe because they had never thought to do it any different way, but maybe also because they're a little a little nervous about that, and they themselves don't know how to do the Socratic questioning and et cetera. Yep. What, what are some ways do you think that they can start to develop those skills in themselves so that they can help their children to do that? I love this question. I, I speak at a lot of homeschool conferences over the years. I've talked to, I don't know, thousands of parents by now. 
And, and I, as a homeschool dad, I hate the term homeschooling because people say, oh, now we're inside the four walls of our house. Magically, everything's going to be better. And exactly as you said, they import all the failed models because it's what they know and it's what they experienced. And so, uh, so I, I don't like homeschooling as a term for that reason. I don't know of a good alternative, you know, home-centered learning, child-led learning. It doesn't roll off the tongue as easier as, as easily as homeschool. Um, but in all of those conversations that I've had with all these parents, there's been a lot of burnout and it's 99% from the moms. Cause the moms are most of the ones kind of shouldering this burden. And, um, and so the moms get burned out and they get burned out for different reasons. But I think the biggest reason they get burned out is because they see themselves as having to be the knower of all the things. In other words, I have to be the biology teacher and the English teacher and the history teacher. And I have to make sure my kids, because now it's on me and I am going to be responsible and my, I don't want my kids to fall behind. And so, I, and oh, they're, they're asking me questions about algebra. I was never good in algebra. Oh, crap, you know? And, and so these parents set up these uh, horrible expectations for themselves to be the authoritarian, the authority figure on all these subjects, when in fact, maybe they only excelled in one of them as, as, a, as a kid in school. So what I tell parents when I'm at these you know, conventions speaking is I say, you need to let go of this model. Let go of the authoritarian approach. Release yourself from the expectation that you have to know everything. Instead, all you have to do is be good at Googling, which, which you know, I hesitate to even say nowadays because Google is evil. So good at duck, duck yes. going or something like that, right? Like Internet but the point teaching. is when your kid asks you a question, don't give them the answer. Say, okay, interesting. How would we find this? And let them see you as what you really are, which is a perpetual learner. Because we as adults never stop learning. We don't know a ton of stuff. We figure it out just in time. We gather it from whatever resources. Let's instead let our kids, let's model for them the behavior of what a perpetual student looks like. And let's release ourselves from the expectation that we have to know everything. Instead, it's like, oh, hey, you're curious about horses. Okay, hey, where can we find resources about horses? And you know, animal husbandry or whatever it's called. And, you know, let's watch YouTube videos about how you change horseshoes. And let's, let's look at the business model of owning a ranch and look at spreadsheets and we can learn charts and graphs, but it's all about horses, you know? And, and so how can we adapt an education system to them? I think, again, that's going to honor their individuality better. Um, and it's going to be far less burnout for the moms. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to know most things. You just have to be good at searching and learn alongside your child so that they can see that you too are a perpetual learner. Wow. That's fantastic. Connor. Just don't use Google. No, no. <laughs> use something else. Yeah. Well, Connor, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Thank you for talking to us about all of this great, great education. We call it topics. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's been fun. And we're gonna put the links for your books, your website, Child Twins, uh, the Khan Academy AI discussion that you mentioned. That sounds really fascinating. I want to go watch it now. Awesome. But well, uh, and if anyone's curious where to find us, it's just tuttletwins.com. Uh we're all over social media. Uh, we're often resharing your guys's spicy memes that are uh, fun, and, and we all have a lot of fun on social media together, I think. So you can follow us at Tuttle Twins, head to TuttleTwins.com for the books. We've got books from toddlers all the way through teens. So no matter the age of your kids or grandkids, we got something for you and appreciate being able to share a little bit about our work with your audience. <laughs> Thanks, Connor. See you Thank next you. time. All right.
Thank you so much for watching this video. If you like what we do here, please like, share, subscribe, comment, and go over to our website where you can offer donations, request help, help us help people who are in need voluntarily. And we'll see you next time.